if you have your Bibles, um, your physical Bibles, or your electronic Bibles, because I know we're in that age, please turn with me to the book of Jude. Book of Jude. We're in week five of our series, Fighting for Truth in an Age of Deceit. Fighting for Truth in an Age of Deceit. You know, sometimes when we look around at all of the wickedness that we see in our culture and all of the ungodly things that are taking place, I wonder if anyone out here, outside from myself, has ever had this thought. How long will things continue to carry on in this world before the Lord does something? You ever had that thought before? Right? Or, or how much longer... I was praying with my wife the other night, and after we were done praying, I told my wife that I, I just felt this stirring from the Holy Spirit, really to ask God, how long will things continue this way before you return? God, when, when? You know, I, I found myself more and more recently often praying for the Lord to no longer tarry. God, I want you to come back. I'm ready for you to come back. Not because I don't want other people to hear, but because I'm ready to be with my creator and savior. Amen? Amen. I think every person in here, if we really thought about it, has maybe had a similar thought to that. You know, there are two sides, though, really, to that thinking of, God, how long? Or when are you going to return? And the first is, is that God is going to come and he's going to judge. And when he does, it will be unlike anything this world has ever seen or experienced. Secondly, though, we all must understand that God is going to judge and judge he must. But the greater longing in our heart should not be for his judgment and justice. The greater longing in our heart really should be for those who have not yet repented and are still in need of God's grace. Judgment begins. Jude chapter 1 verse 14 says this. And it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all of the ungodly way and all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken. Excuse me, Alicia, could you please not read out loud while I'm, while I'm trying to read from the word of God? Let's go back to verse number 14. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Now I want us to just stop right there. I want us to just stop right there for a moment because these three verses, there's so much here uh, that we must cover today and help us to understand uh, really what's going on here in the text. Now, church, the theme of these three verses is judgment and eternal punishment. 
And this is not a popular topic, and it's not something that most people want to think about or really even discuss or talk about. But the Bible is very clear that there is a coming a day when God will judge. There is also clarity on the fact that God is specifically going to bring judgment upon those who walk in apostasy or those who are false teachers. It's very clear. And it is obvious here in the text and has been for the last several weeks how God feels about those who mislead or misrepresent or even corrupt other people with their way of thinking. Now, people who abuse grace and they live an immoral life and then say that they represent God most high are the exact people in which Jude is talking about. And judgment, uh, church, we, we cannot miss this. Judgment gives us God's view towards those who teach or misrepresent a false gospel. Judgment gives us God's view. Now, God's future dealings with apostasy are severe, but church, really, it should be sobering for us as believers. We see a side to God. I don't know where you're at in your relationship with the Lord. I remember for a while when I truly surrendered my life to Christ, I struggled with the concept of hell. I don't know about you. If you've studied, I struggled for a long time about the concept of hell. And I came to this conclusion after months and months and months of studying that hell is what hell is because God is who God is. Hell is what hell is because God is who God is. And we see a side to God in scripture at times that is sometimes hard for us to take. It's sometimes hard for us to even embrace. But hopefully I'll give you an example that will help you. I want you to imagine with me this morning that you are a parent. And for a lot of you in here, I know you are a parent or even a grandparent. Now I want you to imagine with me that someone brainwashed your children. They brainwashed your kids. Uh, I want you to, to think with me that someone has led your children to make choices that cost them dearly and perhaps even prevents them from being in a relationship with you. I want you to imagine this with me this morning. Imagine with me that your child were led to believe lie after lie after lie. As a parent, would you stand back and watch your children be corrupt and conned by crafty and sick, perverted individuals? Would you do that? No. The parents in the room are shaking their head. No, we would not want our kid to do that. We would not stand back. And you're right. So then why as Christians do we expect God to feel or think any less about those same things? We shouldn't. And in fact, God is a pure, holy, righteous judge. And his indignation in the Bible is said that it will be brought to a boil and it will pour out upon the earth here in the coming days. You know, one of the things that's greatly missing today, a fear of God. It's a fear of God. You know, without, without chasing, and I, I told myself that I wasn't going to do this, without chasing too many rabbit trails this morning, I just want to say this to you. There is no way that we can read 
a passage of scripture like this and not be stopped dead in our tracks. There's no way. In fact, I've been in ministry for like almost 15 years of my life. I've been in some capacity of ministry and the longer I spend time in our culture, I've come to realize that evangelism itself is missing a fear element in so many ways. Christian in here this morning, people need to fear God. People need to fear God. In fact, people really should fear hell and eternal judgment and even God's wrath. Yet in many ways, we have moved so far away from even speaking about God's judgment. Now, uh, I don't know if you study anything to do with church history, if you have, but how many of you in here know Jonathan Edwards? Jonathan Edwards, he was one of the individuals here in America that had a huge influence in the second great awakenings and revivals that occurred here in America where thousands of people came to know Christ. Now listen, I'm not Jonathan Edwards standing in front of you preaching his same message, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Jonathan Edwards stood in front of his church, thousands of people, and Jonathan Edwards was a man that struggled with his memory, and so he read line for line from his notes. He would write all of his notes out, and he would stand there, and all he did was read like he was reading a book out loud. Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon one time called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Jonathan Edwards completely unpacks the judgment of God, and in that moment, he said, if you're a Christian and you don't fear judgment that should be upon you, then you can't call yourself a Christian. Now, I'm not up here saying, church, we are sinners in the hands of an angry God, but what I am saying to you as your pastor is we should be aware of what is coming and what will be upon those who have rejected or who misrepresent the gospel. I want you to look at the screen. I think Paul beautifully summed it up when he said, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that which he has done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. Now, Tim, if you would just leave that verse up there for me. Church, we have to live today with an understanding that what we have done will be judged, whether good or bad. It is possible to have a saved soul and a wasted life. It is possible to have a saved soul and a wasted life, and that will also be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. But at the same time, church, you may be like, man, this is going very doom and gloom really quickly. No, as Christians, we should be encouraged in our service to the Lord. We should be encouraged. We should be reminded of the principle in Hebrews chapter 6 that says, for God is not unjust to forget our works and labors that we have done in his ministry. You know, Paul knows and reminds the Christian of the troubles of this life, and he says that they are worth it because we will be rewarded as well when we stand in the presence of God. And so church, we also have to live with an understanding that our motives and what we do will also be judged by God. And 1 Corinthians 13 resonates with that very thought. 
that our, our motives will be judged. You know, one thing, you know, one person can do the right thing, but have the wrong heart. Anybody ever find themselves in that place? I'm doing the right thing, but I don't have the right heart as I'm doing it. I do it because I know that I should, I checked it off for the day, right? I know I should pray, so I'm just going to pray so I can say that it was done. I know I need to read my Bible, so I'm just going to rush through reading my Bible so that I can say I read my Bible today, right? You can do the right thing and have the wrong heart, and God will often still use those situations to even bring great blessing through them. Yet in the very end, it is as if they did nothing for the Lord because their motives for serving didn't stand up at the judgment seat of Christ. But can you go back to that verse for me? I want to point something out. You guys see the latter half of that verse? Paul said, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Knowing. If you're a Christian in here this morning, if you have a relationship with the Lord, we know that apart from Jesus, we are the righteous targets of the terror of the Lord. Apart from Jesus. But we also know that in Jesus, we have been delivered from that same terror. Amen? We've been delivered. And because we know both the place of men apart from Jesus, and we know the place of men in Jesus, we should persuade men to come to Jesus and know what it means to be delivered from that terror. To know what it means. I don't want you to sit here and think, that Paul wrote this message, or Jude wrote the message that we're reading this morning, saying, watch out for the terror of the Lord. Though there is a time and a place for that message, it is not what they're saying. The message is not, if I don't persuade men, I might face the terror of the Lord. That's not what they're saying either. In fact, the message says, because I have been delivered from that terror, you too can be delivered. Come to Jesus. There's a message of hope. That is found here in what seems to be a daunting and discouraging text. In truth, church, the terror of the Lord is targeted or was targeted upon Jesus. So it would not be directed at all of us as sinners for those who place their trust in Jesus Christ. For what he has done for them and the way that he has forgiven and gives mercy and grace to them. So I don't know where this finds you this morning, but... This should be the heart of every single person who presents the gospel. Whether it's in a pulpit just like this, standing up here, or whether you're talking to your neighbor or your coworker or your sibling, your parent. We should intend to persuade men. Persuade men. So you may be sitting here thinking this morning, well, pastor, what does that mean to persuade men? Right? Because I don't want us to walk away thinking that to persuade means to simply cast out, cast out ideas with our mouth and care none about how they respond to them because that's not persuading. As I read throughout scripture, I come across person after person after person in the Bible Prophet after prophet, apostle after apostle, writer after writer in the Bible who passionately desired that men and women come to know Jesus. So you and I have to intend with our heart. 
that we will persuade men to come to know the saving knowledge of grace that is found in Christ and Christ alone. But I just want to let you in on a little secret. That doesn't just happen. You and I are not going to wake up one day and just have this burning desire in us to want to persuade people to come to know Christ. So, Pastor, how does that happen? Well, I'm glad that you asked because I'm going to tell you. You want to know how you have a burning desire inside of you to persuade men? When we've allowed the truths of this book right here to change our thinking and attitude towards the truths that are found in it. That's how. Solomon in the Old Testament, the the wisest man outside of Christ to ever walk this earth, said that when we receive the truths of this word, when we seek them out like hidden treasure, when we search for them like they are silver and gold, he said, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and you will find the knowledge of God in Proverbs chapter 2. And so church, unless we've received it to begin with, unless we have a life that is founded in Christ, and then after we've received it, we begin to search it for the hidden things that are in here for us. Unless we do that, we will never ever have a desire to persuade men. But when we've received and we understand that fear of the Lord, when we find the knowledge of God, church, something happens. Our desires are no longer fleshly and they begin to shape and change and mold into what God's desires are found right here in his words. There's a stark reality here for us this morning. There's a sobering reality here, church. One of the reasons that many people don't fear God is because those who claim to know God don't fear God. And I'm not talking this morning about walking around in some cowering position waiting for God to crush you. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about living a life of obedience out of reverence for your creator. I have come to realize in my 33 years of life that faithful obedience comes when you fear God. Faithful obedience comes or it's displayed in your life out of fear of God. Have you ever been in a place where you sinned or you you did something you know was wrong but you acted as if it wasn't? You acted as if nothing was going to happen because you sinned. A pastor friend of mine, a man that I sat under and served alongside of for nearly 10 years, used to say, choose to sin, choose to suffer. Choose to sin, choose to suffer. He also used to say to us oftentimes that you never sin alone. You never sin alone. Your sin always affects you and everybody in your circle of influence, whether it happens right now or it happens a week from now or a month from now or 10 years from now. Your sin will always affect the people around you. Church, Christian in here, friend, family member, when we sin and we act as though nothing is wrong or that nothing is going to happen, we cast a shadow of doubt over every message that we should be preaching with our lives. And in doing it, 
we end up playing into the hands of Satan. When we cast a shadow of doubt over truth because of how we live our life, we play very, very much so into the hands of Satan. You know, it was Paul who stated in Romans chapter 6, What then shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? And he said, God forbid. God forbid. So there's an example that we see here in Scripture. Right out of the Old Testament of a character that sets the stage of not only faithful obedience, but of a pronouncement of coming judgment. And his name is Enoch. So the first thing I would like for you to write down this morning is that God is exercising patience in withholding his judgment. He's exercising patience. So everything that we know about Enoch is really only located in two places in just a few verses. Genesis chapter 5 and Hebrews chapter 11. Now I want to read to you, they're not going to come to the screen, but I want to read to you what God's word says about Enoch. In Genesis 5, it says that when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah for 300 years and had other sons and daughters. And thus the days of Enoch were 365 years. And then it says this, that Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. He was not for God took him. Now, this is what Hebrews 11 says. It says, By faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony. This is what it says of Enoch. It says that he pleased God. He pleased God. And the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. This is what was spoken of Enoch. Enoch's life was a picture of faithful obedience. And Enoch's prophecy here in the book of Jude is found only in one other place outside of the Bible, and it is the Jewish literature that bears the writings of Enoch before his death. Enoch spoke this prophecy that Jude recorded prior to the flood, and he was foreshadowing a greater judgment that was to come after the flood. But the point is simple, church. Over and over and over again, with clear consistency, prophet after prophet has laid claim to the fact that God is holy, and his final judgment is fast approaching. All throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. And as we read Scripture... We catch small glimpses of that judgment. Just small glimpses. We get a window, so to speak, into what is coming. But nothing in history can truly prepare the world for what God will unleash in the coming days. Nothing. The reality today is that our culture just as much as back then is growing increasingly intolerant to this kind of preaching and speaking. Intolerant. They don't want to hear that God's judgment is coming. They don't want to hear about what happens to the life that rejects truth. 
there are two things that really happen. Two things that people will do when they don't want to hear truth. And they will either fall into one or both of these camps. They're going to hit the screen. For those who don't want to hear this truth, they will pervert and poison the true message of the gospel. They will pervert and poison. You know, people would rather believe a lie than to embrace truth. They would rather believe a lie. And this is what a false teacher knows and what a false teacher will always push. A little lie with a little bit of truth that turns into a heresy or a fable, right? It sounds good, but it truly is false. You want to know what's interesting? The fact that that Paul wrote to Timothy speaking of these very things over 2,000 years ago. Look at the, the verse on the screen, 2 Timothy 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, he says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming, church, do not miss this. For the time is coming, and we're seeing this in coming to fruition and already in a lot of places in fruition, when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own what? Their own passions. And what happens? And they will turn away from listening to what? The truth. And they will wander off into myths. They will reject truth and they will wander off into myths. As Paul sat in a cold, damp prison cell, he understood there was a spiritual reality that was present that went way beyond the walls of of where he was at in that prison. And he emphasized time and time and time again God's word and it was constant in Paul's life. If you were to study out the book of 2 Timothy, you will come to realize that in 36 different verses, in just 2 Timothy alone, there was a reference to the one true gospel. And 17 more times, Paul references false teachers or false teachings. As followers of Christ, church, if you're a believer in here this morning, We are not required to merely know the word. We're not merely required to like the word or even to approve of it. But we are required to follow it and to preach it with this life. We're required to follow it and to preach it. The word of God must be preached by everything that we say and by everything that we do in this life. you're taking notes I want you to just pause for a moment because I need you to hear me out I'd like you to look up here at me for just a moment not everybody who opens up the Bible and starts speaking is preaching the word I'm going to say it again not every person that opens up the Bible and starts speaking is preaching the word of God There are so many people right now, especially in this culture, that will stand in front of a congregation in a pulpit, on a platform, at some event and conference, and just because they have their Bible doesn't mean that they're speaking the truths of God's word. 
and you've come to realize at any point in this, re- in, in this time period in which we live that when a man rejects God's truth, it isn't that he's believing in nothing, it's that he's believing in anything. You know, there are those who don't want to embrace or hear about God's judgment and they pervert and they poison the truth, but they will also place those who preach the truth in prison. Now you're like, well, that's not going on in America. Yes, but it is going on in other places right here, right now. And just like the prophets of old, that after a while, people didn't want to hear the truth. They placed them in prison and sometimes were even martyred for the truth that they spoke. They were permanently silenced. You know, many people have suffered and are still suffering now for preaching and teaching the true gospel. It's happening right here, right now in our culture. Jude is writing and telling us about something that's happening right now. Guess what? Revelation is what's to come. That's what follows after all of this. And some of you may know the story that I'm about to share, or maybe even pieces of the story, but there is a man who back, I believe it was in 2015. In 2015, a Czech missionary and pastor, and most well known for his leadership in the organization, the Voice of the Martyrs, his name is, is Petr Jasek. And he uh, records in his book that I just finished reading recently, Imprisoned by ISIS, his personal journey of persecution during a routine trip for him to Sudan to create a documentary. And in his book, he talked about how he was locked in a cell for six months with members of Islamic State that continuously beat and tortured him for speaking the name of Jesus Christ. In fact, one of the men that tortured and beat him was the personal bodyguard of Osama bin Laden. For six months, he was beaten and tortured. He had no access to running water, no access to a toilet to use the bathroom, and he was forced to eat moldy bread. He says that he lost 55 pounds or more in a very short amount of time. He goes on to say... He goes on to say in his book that he incessantly prayed to God for a release because he could not find God's purpose in his unjust capture. He says he incessantly prayed. But I want to read to you a couple of snippets from his book. He says, but things turned around when I was finally granted access to a Bible and was locked away in solitary confinement for three months. I had nothing to do except for read the Word of God. He said that he read through the book of Genesis all the way to Revelation in three weeks and read it over and over and over again. He says, looking back on my time in prison, I came to realize that God's ultimate assignment for me was to preach the gospel to spiritually hungry prisoners that were there with me. It was an amazing moment, he goes on to say, and I can only read I could only read the Bible when there was just enough light in my cell, and the only way to receive light was to stand at the window and lean my face into the bars so that I could see it. 
I was so amazed at how the Lord was opening up the word for me that I was secretly making notes in my mind of wonder, dis, wonderful discoveries that I'd never seen in the word of God before. He goes on to say that after three months in solitary confinement, he was transferred to a different prison. And that prison had over 10,000 prisoners. And he was placed in a single cell with a hundred other men. A hundred men. And he said, there was a moment that I doubted whether or not I was even going to live. And he said, then one night, 12 refugee teenagers were brought into that same cell. Young men and young women. And he said, and I went there and the Holy Spirit impressed upon me to share Christ with these young men and women. And he said, and each one of them was deeply touched. And in the end, when I saw that the Holy Spirit had prepared their hearts, I asked them if they would commit their life to Christ. And each one prayed aloud that night, and we could not sleep. Not because there was no space. He said, because we wanted to spend the rest of that night talking about Jesus. In the morning... All 12 of those teenage refugees were transferred to different prisons and he never saw them again. He said that he planned to go on a four-day trip and the Lord turned it into 445 days in prison. And he said, and every time I think back... I think back about what the Lord was trying to do. He said, I'm reminded of Isaiah 55. Your ways are higher. Or your ways are, 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 are not like my ways. And your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. And Yasek said that as Christians, we must learn that persecution is a privilege of the Lord. It is a privilege. And so I sit here and I hear stories just like this and I think back to my opening line, my opening thought, my opening prayer that keeps coming back. How long, oh Lord, how long are you going to tarry? When are you going to come back? When are, you going to, when are you going to intervene on behalf of what's happening? And I can't think of a time when those thoughts have not come to me, especially as of late, and I'm reminded from the text, and it is the second thing for us this morning, is that there is certainty of God executing judgment. There is certainty. There are elements surrounding the certainty of God's judgment that's found in the text. Church, we know that God is coming. God is going to return. Amen? And there is a final and special and personal judgment that will occur by God. And for those of you who went through the Revelation Bible study that we had last year, we covered all of those things. Church, I want you to realize and recognize something. We looked, I think it was the very first week of this, We looked at what Jesus said would occur before his return. And he was talking about the birth pains that were already occurring in his day. The Lord is not going to send one final natural disaster. Nor is he going to send 
one specific angel that's going to wipe everything out. And he's not going to use some foreign army. Yes, elements of this can be seen in the text of Revelation that will take place during the judgment. But the reality is, church, God himself will be coming back in the form of his son, Jesus Christ. Yes, angels will accompany him. Yes, saints will accompany him. But he himself will come here for final judgment. God is going to end the suffering of his people and it will come by his own hand. Judgment happens upon all and no one will escape. It is general and it will be a public act and it will encompass the ungodly and all of those who do not believe and God does the judging. He declares them guilty. He executes the punishment church there will be a judge and Jesus is the standard by which men are judged but there will not be a jury there will be a prosecution but there will be no defense in the end every mouth must be stopped and put to silence in the name of Jesus Christ there will be a sentence that will occur and no appeal allowed to happen You know, the highest court of appeals is God most high, and he's the one that's pronouncing the sentence. So where's the hope? Where's the hope this morning? Because, Pastor, you you just sat for the last 40 minutes telling us about God's judgment and the reality of it and that we must recognize it and we must share it with people. And so where, where is the other side, right? Where, where's the hope that comes with it? Well, church, we're living in a dispensation of grace and that's the hope. We're living in a time period in which the Lord has not returned yet. And there are still opportunities for people to hear and respond to the true gospel. And every day that we wake up and we are still here upon this earth, we're experiencing the patience of God. We're experiencing the patience of God right now in this moment because he has not come. But God has pronounced judgment and it is coming one day. And so as believers, we should know that we are not appointed unto God's wrath. But the sobering thought here this morning is what about those who do not repent and face the wrath and judgment of God? What about them? Because the ungodly will be punished, but it's not our job to do it. God will do it. But certainly we should contend and defend, but not condemn The mission to remember is that the gospel message must be preached and that while there is still time, people need to come to repentance. That's our hope. And so what can we do to contend for the faith? Every week I've given you three things that we can do. And this week, no different. What can we do? Well, church, first and foremost, we must protect the truth. We must protect the truth. We've been talking about it for the last several weeks, knowing the truth, understanding that truth, and living that truth out so that we are not persuaded by something that is false, something that is not of God, so protect the truth. Second is we must preach 
we must preach the truth. Protect it and preach it. That means everything that we say and everything that we do should align with the word of God. We should have a life that looks like a resemblance of Christ. I love the fact that Paul talks to us in the book of Corinthians about being ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador is a representation of something else. We have them here in our country. Other countries have them. We are to be a representation of all things that are holy and righteous. Amen? And then last, we should prepare people for God's coming judgment. We should prepare. So we should protect the truth, preach the truth, and prepare people for the coming judgment. I just want to take a poll this morning. This is not to call anybody out. I don't, I'm not, to, not standing up here asking this question here in just a moment uh, to make you feel bad. But as your pastor, I want to know so that I can help equip you. How many of you in here would, would be okay here in this setting as a church body, a church family, raise your hand and say, I don't know if I could lead somebody to the Lord. I don't know. That's, it's okay. Because I want to know, because I want to be able to equip you to have gospel conversations. Right? That's, that's, that, right, Ephesians 4, one of the roles of a pastor is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Right? So I want to be able, how many of you in here would say, hey, I would be confident in myself to be able to share the gospel with somebody if I had an opportunity? Yeah, so a, a good chunk of hands, right? How many of you would be willing to set through some more training on how we should have gospel conversations or can? Yeah, great. So like almost every hand is in here. So church, my, my challenge to you is to go home today and to begin to reread the gospel. Understand it. Know it. Write down questions that you have that come up. Because guess what? Someone who wants to know Jesus and needs to receive Jesus is not going to care if you can tell them every single piece about the Bible. It's okay to say, I don't know, let me find out for you. And I can, That's okay, totally okay. But church, we have to protect truth, but we have to know the truth before we can protect it. We have to know the truth. So go home, go home and start studying out the Gospels. Figure out how you could present it in a way that's non-invasive. And church, my, my challenge then from there would be in the coming months when I uh, do um, some sort of midweek Bible study about how we can share the gospel and have those conversations that you sign up and you come. Make a commitment to come and be challenged not only by the word of God, but be challenged to grow in having, having moments where we have divine interactions and divine encounters with people who need Jesus. I have found no more greater satisfaction than when the Holy Spirit impresses upon me when I'm standing in a grocery store and I strike up a conversation with somebody. No more greater satisfaction when, when the Holy Spirit is like, hey, they need prayer. I don't know about you, but man, there's just something that comes to life in me when I'm, when I'm obedient to the Holy Spirit. There's just something that comes to life. And so church, let's pray. Let's pray. Um, Heavenly Father, I just I thank you for uh, these hard truths in your word, truths that we must know and understand as believers so that we could even unpack some of this to someone who had questions. But greater than that, Lord, I'm asking for a sense of urgency in our lives 
that we would see those who need you in their life. That we would recognize our responsibility and role in presenting the gospel to the people in our circle of influence. And so, Lord, I ask really for a few things. God, I ask for divine appointments for each and every one of us. I ask that you would present us with opportunity to present truth to people who are lost and hurting and hopeless. But Lord, in that, I also ask for the boldness and the liberty to speak. Holy Spirit, fill our mouths, fill our minds in those moments. And Lord, give us the strength to just obey you. Give us the strength in those moments to obey. Lord, give us the opportunity so that we can walk in obedience. Give us uh, your desires. God, I would ask that you would change the taste buds of our heart to fill us with your truth so our minds are saturated on you. And I just ask and pray these things now in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. Amen.